If you have a Bible, please open it to Romans chapter 12. Uh, Very shortly, we will be reading verses 3 through 8. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can find Romans 12 on uh, page 891 of the Bible that is in the pocket of the pew in front of you. We sometimes scoff at the way in which people speak about it in sort of a sicky, sweet sarcasm or over-the-top sentiment, but love truly is to be at the center of everything that we do, not just as people, but as, as a church as well. It is the center of the greatest and most important commands that our Lord gives to us. It's so central in our lives that the Lord says, not only ought you to love those people who love you, but you are to love those people who don't know anything about you. And even more than that, you are to love even the people who know of you and hate you, those who you would call your enemies. Of course, love is always spoken of people in the West who whatever. Am I on? There we go. So uh, very few people would ever talk badly about love. And the problem with that is that folks in the West tend to well, they, they mold love, they shape love into something that is good for their own causes. Love is simply a tool used to justify sinful or wrong actions in the name of something that we might call good. But we are not used to use it to simply justify our actions post our doing them. But rather, it is to be the very thing that motivates us to act in the way that we do. And Paul has highlighted this problem already. In Romans chapter 12 and verses 1 and 2 of that chapter, which we viewed a couple of weeks ago, Paul made mention of the fact that we are not to be conformed by the world, but we are to be transformed through the renewal of our mind. And certainly, he would have us to be transformed by the love that Jesus would have us live out. So the question becomes, how are we to do this? What Paul gives us today are pretty normal and standard ingredients for how the church is to walk forward together. These are the same sort of things that you would find in passages like 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, Philippians 2, and Ephesians 4. They're pretty standard when it comes to the recipe that Paul has for building healthy churches. Let us see what our three ingredients are this morning. If you would read with me in Romans 12, beginning in verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is the word of our God. Well, these three ingredients, the first thing I would like to put before you is one that you have heard me say many, many, many times, but we will repeat it as long as we have to. It is the ingredient of humility. You must be humble. It is a right appreciation of the service that you are to do for others. Humility is hard-baked into the fiber of what it means to believe in Jesus Christ. After all, if you are not humble, I don't know how you would say that Jesus Christ has saved you. 
to say that Jesus Christ has saved you is to look outside of yourself. It's to say that there is nothing in me that will ever merit my salvation. It is humbling in the most because you are relying completely and utterly on a foreign entity to give you that which you need. That is a humbling thing. The problem, though, is that pride is also sort of hard-baked into who we are. It's part of our selfish, our fallen, our wicked human nature. And so Paul, while he has people here who believe who should naturally be walking in humility, he has to continually remind them to walk in humility. And we would do well to remind ourselves that the world doesn't work like this. In most circumstances, the world tells people that what they need is pride. They need confidence in themselves. They need to value themselves above everything else. We're told that our kids need to be proud of themselves, that confidence truly matters for their success in the future, and indeed even for ours. Not all of that is completely and totally wrong, but often that impression is made that we are only to believe in ourselves and everything else will sort of work out. We're to believe that we're good enough. We're to believe that we're smart enough. We're to have a little pride, walk with a little bit of confidence, believe in yourself, and things will work out. This is so pervasive in our society and our culture that it pops up in places that you really honestly wouldn't expect. You might expect this from, like, a psychologist. You might expect this from somebody who goes around selling self-esteem books. But this is hard-baked into even the most difficult of sciences, astrophysics and Carl Sagan standing before TV uh, back in the 70s and the 80s on the show Cosmos saying things like, the cosmos is within us. We are made of star stuff. We are a way for the universe to know itself. Like, wow, aren't we great? We're made of star stuff. And the whole purpose of that is, is to say that you have value. You have value. Because Sagan knows intrinsically that he's got to mention something of the value of human beings. You have value, he says. You're made of the very stuff of the stars. These most glorious cosmic explosions eventually give the very atoms that you have in your body. He has to do this. Because if you are the only God you know, if you are the only God you can see and understand, then you must indeed be glorious and highly valued. The problem is, You're not the only thing that's made from star stuff. The raccoon that rifles through your garbage can to pick out that piece of rancid meat, made of star stuff. I don't know if that makes you feel better or worse. The real problem with all of this is how imperceptible it is. It's just, it it floats around in the air around us. We we breathe it in, we breathe it out. It's just always present. And it fits so easily with the way our flesh tends to walk. We want to consider ourselves as good and noble We want to consider ourselves as better than others who are around us. And the real danger is that pride squeezes out love. You think of yourself first as lovely. You will expect that other people will see the loveliness of who you are. If you think of others around you as lower than you, you will treat them as lower than you. It means that it's much less likely that you will put up with any sort of slight, any sort of error, any sort of pushback on your ideas, any sort of criticism of any kind. These things will always be met with an idea of, I'm being mistreated because I'm better than this. They'll be greeted with anger and jealousy. So what most people do is push towards extremes. This is something that Americans are really good at. If a little bit of something is good, a lot would be better. And so when churches talk 
about this. When preachers talk about things like humility, we often try to push it to the very extreme. We talk about how we are lowly and worm-like, how we are nothing but dirt, and, and we can even use words like filth and scum to describe ourselves before our God because our God is great and magnificent, and we are sinful and wretched before him. We can quote Psalm 22.6 and speak of the fact that we are wormish before God. And there is a place for things like this. After all, Psalm 22 is a psalm. It is in the Bible. After all, the Bible does describe us as lowly and limited and at times very, very wretched. The problem is that pride and value often go hand in hand. The reason why the world has to pump pride into people is because there's no other way for them to evaluate the goodness of who they are, the worth of who they are. We do not lack that. We are indeed wormish, and we can uphold that as long as we hold up that simultaneously we are beloved by a creator who owns everything. He made everything with the power of his voice. He could call anything to himself that he wanted to. And friend, he called you. He called you as his precious possession. He called you to have with him forever. He called you. So if you want to consider yourself a worm, that's fine. But you are a blessed worm indeed. Your value is found in that, not found in yourself realize that the affirmation of a creator God who can have anything that he wants in his life and chooses you, the affirmation of that is greater even in the smallest measure than the most amount of pride and value you could ever put in yourself simply because you have it. No amount of affirmation could possibly mean more. Friends, being humble does not mean being worthless. What does Paul say? He says, do not think of yourself as greater do not think of yourself as more important, highly, more highly than anyone ought to think, but with sober judgment. He doesn't mean think of yourself as lowly as possible. He means think of yourself rightly. Consider your value and your worth before God rightly. The whole point of this, like Paul mentions in other places, is that we would serve one another well. That we don't think highly of ourselves because in thinking highly of ourselves, we're unlikely to do the dirty work of actually serving one another this is what he says in Philippians 2. Before he goes on to the great Christological remarks that he's going to make in verses 5 through, through 11, this is what Paul says in Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. That's precisely what Paul is saying here. In humility do this. Have the mind of Christ who did not consider himself as coming as God in the form of divinity, taking on human nature as one to be served, but rather as one to serve. If Christ was one who was going to serve, then friend, you better in humility consider yourself as someone who ought to be serving the church. Second, along with humility, we have unity. Verses 4. And five. There Paul writes, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. It's not too hard to look around the world, and just as though love is held up as something of grand importance, so is unity. We are a people who want to be unified. We are a people who, who want to have sort of a, a, a common mark going forward. 
The world, though, seems to want this through conformity. So if you look back at the USSR or even China today, many of their social policies are set in such a way that what they want is not diversity and unity somehow through that, but what they actually want is people just to act and talk and say the same things. It's interesting that that makes its way into a lot of Western literature, especially really powerful political literature that people find like A Brave New World by Huxley in 1984. The whole idea there is that people talk and act and think exactly in conformity with one another, and any step outside of that bound is viewed as untenable for people in society. It's interesting that Paul then talks about unity the way he talks about unity here. He doesn't talk so much about the need that we have for unity as much as he does the fact that we are unified. He says, so we, though many, are one body. He doesn't say you guys need to be unified. He says the fact is you're already unified. And he picks out this metaphor of the body, which is such a beautiful metaphor that he uses in a number of different places for the working of members of a church or churches even together. The idea is you've got different parts of your body. You've got fingers and kidneys and livers and lungs. But none of them do the same thing. They're all different. They're gifted with different things. They act in different ways. They do different things. Because in order for the body to function as one organism, you need to have all those different things. To get muscles to work, they need oxygen. So we need lungs. But for the lungs to do their job, you need a heart to send blood to carry the oxygen there. But we need blood to be filtered and cleansed. So we don't just need a heart to pump it. We need a liver and kidneys to cleanse it. You need all of those things. None of them are the same. This is how we ought to think of ourselves. We are all different. But those differences are presented in the church to build up our unity, to help us be unified together Our unity is not based on the fact that we're all the same. We're not unified in spite of our differences. What Paul seems to be implying pretty clearly here is that we're unified because of our differences. That one of the things that makes us unified is that we're not all fingers. Because all fingers doesn't make a human. We're unified because we're not all liver. Because if we were just liver, we wouldn't be a human. We wouldn't have a body. But because we're different and distinct from one another... We are actually a body that functions together. This is helpful to fight against two opposite ends of a spectrum when it comes to dealing with things like unity in the church. The first is to not care about unity at all and just to have this sort of rampant individualism that says, I don't don't really care what is happening with other people in the church. What really matters to me is how I read Scripture What really matters to me is my devotion to God. What really matters to me is my journey in the Lord, my faith before the Lord, my maturity before the Lord. It's people that take this sort of James Bond and Beatles approach to live and let die. C'est la vie. I'm going to do what I want to do. You do what you want to do. I'm not going to harass you about it. If you don't choose well, all the worse for you. But I'm really more concerned with making sure that I grow. Paul would look at that and say simply, Absolutely not. There's no rampant individualism here. Fingers do not exist on their own. Neither do kidneys, neither do livers. You exist as part of a body because you exist to help other people out. What is important to you is not just your journey in the Lord. It's not just you working hard to make sure that you are mature. 
but it's caring about your brother and sister in the Lord as well, working for them to help them grow into maturity. This is exactly what Paul lays out in Ephesians 4, isn't it? In Ephesians 4, the whole body knit and and put together is working together, all of us as ministers of the Lord, to minister ourselves into fullness, into completion in the body of Christ. This is exactly what Paul's talking about. There is no room for individualism here. There's no room to say, I'm concerned about myself, and that's all that really matters. You have to be concerned about brothers and sisters in the Lord. You have to be concerned about their growth, concerned about their pain, concerned about carrying their burdens and doing all the one another things that we always talk about. But it also, also fights against this sort of collectivism. And this is more rampant in the church than I think a lot of us would care to believe. You are also while not strictly an individual within the church, you're also not a cog in a larger machine. You are not just here so that the church can fulfill its vision, whatever that vision might be, whatever the vision of Crossway is walking forward, regardless of what it is, you're not just a cog in the machine that's actually disposable so long as we can replace you with something that does a similar type of function. A famous megachurch pastor once used the metaphor of a bus. He said, you either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. There's a pile of dead bodies behind the church's bus, and by God's grace, it'll be a mountain by the time we're done. This might surprise you. He wasn't quoting Jesus there. Like, that, that's, that's hardly compatible with Jesus saying, yeah, yeah, there's a sheep that goes astray. Leave the 99, go get the one. As a megachurch pastor, as somebody who, who carries the vision forward for them, what he meant was simply, we've got this vision, we've got a goal of what we want to do, and you either get on board with it and follow our lead, or you get off. And frankly, I, he's clearly, I don't know how you could take it any way. I don't care if you get off. I don't care if we run you over. I don't care about the harm that we do to you. You're just a cog. This is not far, not far away from how I was taught in seminary. When I was going through pastoral classes and, and you say, hey, we're going to teach you what the right vision for the church is. We're going to teach you how to, how to grow a church and this is the right thing to do. And what you're going to do is you're going to show up. Some of you are going to go into churches and those churches are going to be filled with people who are not going to share your vision. They're not going to think along the same lines as you. And the whole idea was, listen, just wait them out. Some of them are going to die. Some of them are going to stay and be grumpy. Some of them are going to change your mind, their mind. You're going to add new people in as well. So if you wait long enough, you'll have enough people to share your vision that you can start moving forward with it. Well, that's not too much different than saying, I'm just going to wait for people to fall off the bus so we can run them over. That's not exactly what we're supposed to do. Now, it's true. If you came to me, even as a member, and you had an idea for something that was just way out there, I would probably shut it down. I saw online this uh churches do the stupidest things it featured it was a musical number which featured people dressed up as marvel characters specifically loki and iron man where loki was crucifying iron man for some reason i don't know why while each was singing weird versions of 90s songs loki was singing it's the end of the world as we know it by rem and i kid you not on the cross iron man was singing tub thumping by chubba now, if you came to me and was like, that sounds brilliant, I would say, 
I don't know what I would say. I'd probably be just as dumb. I'd probably be just as dumbfounded as I am right now because I've got no answer. That, that sounds horrifying. It's brilliant to watch online and to be like, "Oh my goodness, what are you people thinking?" But brother, we probably won't be doing that here. Uh, you know. I, I, but what we wouldn't do is say, "Listen, you either drop that or you get run over by the bus." We say, "There's a better way to do things. This is why we do things. We're unified." So we're not just individuals, but you're not just cogs. You have real value because you are a person of this church. You are a member of this church. No matter how insignificant you might think you are, we ought to value the input that we get from one another because you're not just cogs. We have real importance here. So first we talked about humility. We talked about unity. Last, we're going to talk about gifts. Verses 6 through 8. One of the chief ways that we are useful before the Lord is by the gifts that he gives out. This portion is actually pretty tightly written in in the original language, and so what we've done is expanded out, and we're going to talk about that a little bit. But let's look at the the ways in which Paul talks about these, these gifts. First, he mentions prophecy, which is an incredibly important gift to Paul. I think the best way to understand prophecy is it is a spontaneous revelation of God that's given to certain people. It was quite common in the early church. Paul talked about it as the spiritual gift that you should want. Here he talks about it being in proportion to your faith, and I think that that simply means that if you're going to prophesy, you better be sure in accordance with your faith of how sure your prophecy is. So if you think that you've received something from God and you're going to say that I got this, this sort of revelation from God, this vision from God, you'd better be sure that you got it from God. And the more sure you are of its prophecy, the more sure you are you got it from God. We would add to this a whole bunch of things from 1 Corinthians about how it needs to be tested and how it's used in worship and things like that. Service, which is the second bit, is simply generic service. Teaching is slightly different from prophecy. If prophecy is the spontaneous declaration of a revelation from God, teaching is the straightforward teaching of the doctrine of the church, which is there slightly different than exhortation which is the application of the doctrine of the church. Leadership is supposed to be done with zeal. It's not done hesitatingly. The idea of zeal here is not zealous simply to be a leader, but zealous to do the things of God. When Paul uses this word, it is almost directly in reference to God or the things of God. So you are to be a zealous leader for God, to lead people to God, to lead them in God. Giving ought to be done with generosity. If you have a spiritual gift of giving, give, but don't do so stingily. Don't do so with reproach. Mercy is likewise to be done with cheer, not resentment, not hesitation. These things are are picked out here. There's a couple things we want to say about these first. This is not a complete list. He mentions seven things here. It's important to realize that every single time that Paul mentions gifts, He mentions different ones in every single list he goes through. So there's no one list of gifts that you can get. It seems like these are portioned out to people and places and at times where the Spirit finds them extremely useful. There are probably gifts today that Paul wouldn't even thought of mentioning because people need to be gifted differently. One of the first questions that people come to when they come to a list like this is they say, I don't know which one of these I have. And so you start to ask and say, well, how do I determine what my gift is? I say, it's easy. We keep a list of the gifts in the nursery, and so long as you serve three weeks out of the four in the nursery, 
you can find out what your spiritual gift is. Okay? So sign up. Justin's in the back. See him. He'll gladly sign you up for a nursery, and you can find him. We keep him hidden in there. You just got to look around a bit. Uh, try cleaning a diaper out every once in a while when you do it. So the truth is there's no one list. It's really subjective. You can go online, and you can get these spiritual gift inventories. There's basically three things that it comes down to. What are you good at? You're not going to have a spiritual gift in things that you just feel weird doing. So if you have never had a teaching instinct in your body, in your life, chances are probably pretty good that teaching's not your gift. You're not just going to spontaneously get up and become Charles Spurgeon. Okay? So things that you're good at. And secondly, things that bring you a great deal of joy. So if, if you get a great, if you find that you are capable and you get a great deal of joy out of giving to people, out of giving money to people who are, are struggling, to giving money to things like the IMB and the North American Mission Board. The man, do that. Don't do it with stinginess or reproach to people who need, but do it generously. What are you good at? What fills you with joy? And third, and importantly, what's beneficial to the church? Because there are plenty of things that you probably are good at and that fill you with joy that have absolutely no benefit to the church. So what also benefits the church? What can you do that will make the church run more efficiently, proclaim the gospel more clearly, help other people in the church sit and be at peace and comfortable here? I don't know if that helps you. What I would tell you is that the main thing that you need to do is just try. Try things. Try giving. Try doing acts of service. Try doing, in a number of different ways, the things that Paul lists in these, these lists. See is if any of those fit you. If you are concerned about where to find it, start working at finding it. But Paul does mention these seven. And frankly, the way in which they're worded is a little weird. If, in verse 7, he says, if service in our serving. That seems fairly redundant. I don't know how else we would do our service, but in the serving, um, we wouldn't do our service in the holding back of our service, so I guess that's clearing something up. I think that Paul means two things by this, and I want to press those for you before we finish. First, how do you make your gift more valuable and more excellent? So if you have the gift of giving, then give generously. Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy, or excuse me, in 1 Timothy, and says, Timothy, I laid my hands on you, and you received a gift, the gift of preaching and teaching. He says, I want you to fan the flame of that gift, that you are to make your giftedness more valuable by practicing your giftedness, that the Spirit has given you a gift, but that doesn't mean that you don't need to practice it to get better at it. And you can get better at giving. You can get better at picking up when people talk about their needs. You can get better at picking up where people talk about uh, having, having other people's needs in mind. And say, hey, well, I will, I will give more generously and more generously and more generously. Sometimes we, we feel like if something is a gift, that people just don't have to work at it. It looks effortless. We think about this with sort of worldly gifts, people who are great athletes, people who are great artists, great musicians. We listen to them play. We listen to them. We watch the, the things that they've painted. We say, oh man, that looks so effortless. But as it turns out, almost all of them worked 
harder than anyone else. Michael Jordan didn't become the greatest basketball player in the history of the world by taking Wednesdays off. He was religious in his commitment to being the best. That's what made him the best. Yes, he was gifted in ways that I never possibly could be, and no amount of hours put into practice of basketball would ever make me as talented as he was. But what set him apart from everybody else, what sets people, whether they're painters and sculptors, whether musicians, apart from other people, is their dedication to what they're doing. It's no different for us. Fan the flame of your gift. Get the most out of it. If in service, then serve, and serve, and serve, and get better. Secondly, I think what Paul means by this is to have us be focused. Paul says here at least means that you should focus on that gift. If your gift is in service, then serve. It doesn't mean that you don't have to do other things on this list. Certain things on this list are particular to people. You're, if you're not gifted in teaching, you're not required to teach. Everybody in here is indeed required to do acts of mercy and is required to, to be generous in, in giving in some way. So you don't get to skip out on all of these things. But what Paul does mean to say is, if you find your gift, focus on that. Don't do 20 different things around here. Don't do as many things as you can. When you find out what it is, work on that thing. Focus on that thing. If it's in teaching, then ask for teaching. Seek out teaching. Try to do teaching. If it is in giving, then focus yourself on being the best giver you can be with joyful generosity. But focus on those things. What we don't want is 20% of the people doing 80% of the work. But the reason why that happens is because there are certain people who spread themselves thin doing everything. God has left you bereft of things that you need so that he can have others equipped to help you with it. Find your gift Work it to the best of your ability. Normally when I, I write sermons, I find the, the main points I want to make, whether it's three or sometimes 20, I find the points that I want to make, and then I, I try to reframe and reword the, the actual outline points so that they kind of fit with one another's assonance. I, I'll end words with the same sounds or something like that. So you might expect, like, you know, humility, unity, giftedy or something like that, um, which you laugh because you know that I was really close to doing that. And, uh, but I, I realized that as I was laying out my points, that there was something brilliant that happened with humility and unity and gift that is cheesy and stupid, but it works. And that is, it makes an acronym of HUG. Let, this isn't an, an Avengers thing. Just listen to me, okay? So we're required by Paul, he says, you are to greet one another with a holy kiss. The whole purpose of that is to show affection for one another. It's, it's a sign, a clear sign, a visible symbol of affection for one another. Now, we are not a culture that does that kind of thing, so hugging is typically what we do. Side hugs, man hugs where you do the handshake and then you pat the back, whatever the case is, but we, we hug for those things, and this is exactly what Paul wants for us to know from this. These are signs of our affection for one another. That we have been purchased by the blood of Christ. We have been brought into fellowship with one another. We are being built up into a temple for God. We have been called not to be served, but to serve others. And as a sign of our affection and our love and our care for brothers and sisters in the church, we practice these things. We seek to be humble, to not think better of ourselves than we ought to. 
We know and understand our unity, that while my gift might not be the same gift that somebody else has, while they might have a better gift, I will do what I can with what God has given to me to serve my church. We represent and we recognize the same kind of gifting that we find in other people. We encourage them, we exhort them, we teach them. We do this for the glory of Jesus Christ who has called us together. May it be so. Find your gift, be humble, and use it for the unity of the body of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, uh, what wonderful gifts you give to us. You granted us life and salvation in your Son, promised an inheritance to us, and you will certainly see it through. These are no less gifts to us. Yet even so, we are not left here to our own devices, waiting for those gifts to be true. But even here, you have given us gifts so that we might not have to strive in our own power to be holy and useful in your kingdom. But by the use of these gifts, the Spirit gives us the ability to be those very things. We pray that you might unify us in these things. We pray that we would use these gifts for the good of your people, being built up into the fullness of the measure of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And all this we pray in your name. Amen.